Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us and let's learn together. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, as we said in that intro, not an official Disney podcast. Nobody's told Disney we're here, right? Nobody's dobbed us in. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while kid, honestly, I could go on and on. I could explain every natural phenomenon, the sky, the grass, the ground. Oh, that was Maui just messing around. I could do that whole thing. We probably don't have time for it. You get the picture. I am not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, on this very special first ever live action in more ways than one episode of Disneyversity. I'm a hapless, hopeless, weasel-fearing, plate-smashing rabbit, desperately trying to make people laugh as I try and clear my name. Thankfully, I do, as usual, have a little bit of help, by which I mean a lot of help. You guys are going to know who I'm talking about right now, but let's give him a massive welcome anyway. He's the guy that owns Toontown. He's the gag king himself. He never misses a night when Jessica performs. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Dr. Sam Summers. <laughs> Sam. I was here. Hello, Mike. I was at the back the whole time. <laughs> it's magic of podcasts. <laughs> Usually you're our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Uh, but for our live show, we're mixing things up a little bit and heading just a bit outside our usual regular Disney canon. Uh, so Sam, how are you feeling about what is technically our first non-Disney show about our jump to live action. How are you feeling about that? I mean, obviously, um, something in my brain is upset that we're deviating both chronologically and from the Disney animated canon proper, but I'm very excited to be in a live context. I do this for a living, you know. I give, I give lectures for a living. It usually costs nine grand a year, so you guys got in here at, what, a 0.1% discount. That's pretty, that's pretty special. Yeah, I haven't done one in person since the pandemic started, though, so oh, <laughs> maybe I'm rusty. Anything could happen. <laughs> well, let's get a bit of a, a sense of the room. Uh, who here has listened to the show before? Normally, I would ask for a show of hands, but this is a podcast, so the audible show of hands will be some kind of whoop or cheer. Who's listened to the show before? <laughs> That's what we like to hear. Is anybody, uh, it's fine if it is, is this anybody's first Disneyversity? Has anybody not listened to the pod before? We have a guy here. There's a couple of people there. Welcome, welcome to the show. Now, because we have a couple of people in the room who haven't listened to the show, and I mean, we're gonna do this anyway. Uh, Sam, 
I believe you're able to help us get up to speed with where we are in the show, what's been happening so far, and where Who Framed Roger Rabbit sits in the timeline. 1937, Walt Disney invent the Cell animated feature film with Snow White. Perfect it with Pinocchio, experiment with Fantasia, make a fun little cartoon adventure with Dumbo, serious, realistic adult drama with Bambi, then it's World War II, and they made a bunch of movies that no one has ever heard of, and <laughs> I missed out Fun and Fancy Free, and none of you noticed. On the <laughs> Uh, a big comeback with Cinderella, back to the princess roots, then banger after banger after banger after banger. Sleeping Beauty banged so hard it nearly bankrupted them. <laughs> so they dialed things back a bit aesthetically with 101 Dalmatians, but don't talk about the sword and the stone. <laughs> That's a touchy subject. Is anybody here in the room who is upset with us with our uh, stone episode? Any big stone heads? Yeah. You might be able to yell at us afterwards about that. <laughs> yell at us in the foyer, please. Then Walt Disney dies. Awww. But you know, he managed to get a lot of working on the Jungle Boot beforehand. That was directed by a guy called Wooly Rivermi, who takes the reins of the studio after Walt's death, makes a movie about a drunk goose called The Aristocats, <laughs> makes a movie about a sexy fox called Robin Hood, makes a movie about all of my deepest emotional issues <laughs> with Winnie the Pooh. Tissues on stage. Why didn't we ask for that? Uh, the Rescuers getting a bit darker. Shout out Shout to Team Orville. Team Orville. <laughs> Fox and the Hound, borderline traumatic, pushes it over the edge with the complete nightmare that is the Black Cauldron. Huge box office bomb. <laughs> but meanwhile, <laughs> speaking of freaks, um, a corporate takeover installs a new CEO, Michael Eisner. That's him in the middle. <laughs> with two of his biggest stars, Mickey Mouse and Fuzz Bucket. Wait, is this a real photo of, of Michael Eisner with Fuzz Bucket? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a real photo. that You haven't photoshopped that. That's from the TV premiere of the movie Fuzz Bucket, where Eisner meets Fuzz Bucket. He introduces him to Mickey Mouse. Mickey's like, oh, hi, Fuzz Bucket. I'm your biggest fan. I really loved your movie. Nobody ever. And by the way, when you say movie, that is in the biggest air quotes ever. The movie Fuzz Bucket. <laughs> 45 minutes of pure terror. So Michael Eisner, big time Hollywood executive, takes over Disney. He's sort of one of our main characters for this era of Disneyversity that we've entered into, along with his number two head of production at Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg there. <laughs> that, that was An entirely unfocused. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, just sitting down there for a cool cans of Diet Coke, uh, as he does Shrek's dad, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he produced Shrek, that's what that meant. It's, we haven't got there yet. Under or despite their leadership, Disney makes another big comeback, ramping it up with Great Mouse Detective, the greatest movie ever made, starring Billy Joel, Oliver and Company, huge box office smash with the Broadway stylings of The Little Mermaid, and a big technological advance with Rescuers Down Under, which brings us up to date with the Disneyversity podcast thus far, but we are going back in time now today. Ooh, for a Robert Zemeckis movie going back in yeah. time? Christopher Lloyd. Free <laughs> <laughs> Roger Rabbit. There, nestled in between Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company. It's a hard pair of movies. You know, it's a tough act to follow. It's, but I think it's pretty good. I think it's a pretty good movie. <laughs> okay, so that is everybody up to speed. Yep. Will and Sam. That was very swift. Uh, so now we are going to do as we normally do and crack on with the rest of the show. Now, for everyone who here who has listened before, you will know that at various points in our regular episodes. We have a little bit of music that goes like this. 
You hear it like a million times in every episode. Now, we don't have that in the room because I thought we kind of don't need that in the room. If I want, I can add it in afterwards. Maybe it's just going to sound a bit weird. Then today I thought it might sound a bit weird without it. So what I thought we would try, everybody needs to get over their social awkwardness. And we're going to do a small sing song. I am also going to join in. Sam is going to join in. There'll be various points in the show where I'll cue us up. And if everybody, let's do a practice run of a do, 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 do. Okay, that was good. One more. Three, two, one. Do, 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 do. Okay, great. We've nailed that. So I'm going to do a little bit of setup now. And then when I throw my hand in the air, we're all going to do, do, do. So everybody good. Everyone know what they're doing. That is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, you might be worried that us talking about a live-action animated hybrid movie by Robert Zemeckis with appearances from Jiminy Cricket and a sentient puppet might mean we're discussing this week's largely not very good Pinocchio remake. But fear not, <laughs> we're heading back in time to the late 80s to talk about what was then the most ambitious crossover movie of all time. 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And let's get a one of those. Hey, beautiful. Thank you, guys. Okay, this is the part where I always say, Sam, I hope everyone in the room has seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit either at any point in their life uh, or in, the, in this week. Who has watched it this week in preparation for this podcast? Yeah, that's great. Anybody not seen Roger Rabbit? Anybody never seen it? Okay, few. That's, that few <laughs> One of the back. back. <laughs> Strap in, because we've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> this is the point where I usually say, Sam, what is the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And you either say, yes, I've remembered to prepare this bit, or oh my God, I forgot to prepare <laughs> this bit. I've got to improvise it, yeah. Have you got a plot summary yeah. for Who Framed L- Roger Rabbit? Listen back to the podcast, see if you can figure out which ones are improvised <laughs> and which ones are written down. Fun game. In a world where cartoon actors live alongside humans, washed-up detective Eddie Valiant is hired to prove that Roger Rabbit's wife, Jessica, is cheating on him with gag mogul Marvin Acme. But when Acme is found dead, Eddie and Roger must team up to prove the rabbit's innocence, find the real culprit, and save Toontown from an evil conspiracy. Nicely done. Ooh, I like that. I like that. It's great doing it live. Yeah, we should do this every week. Um, So how did... Who Framed Roger Rabbit come about? As we said, this is our first technically non-Disney movie. There are Disney characters in the movie, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, But this is an Amblin film. This is directed by Robert Zemeckis, who directed Back to the Future. Spielberg, obviously, is behind Amblin. So how did it first arise? How did these people come together, and how did they make this movie? So Ron Miller, who was Michael Eisner's predecessor at Disney, Walt Disney's son-in-law, bought the rights to the book who censored Roger Rabbit. It's based on a book. Not everybody knows that. So Ron Miller bought the rights to this book in 1981 before it had even come out. And the movie went straight into development. Some test footage was shot. I think you can see bits and bobs of that on Disney+. Plus. There was a little bit of animation done, some character designs. But by the time Eisner and Katzenberg took over, development had stalled by, that's 1984. But Katzenberg wanted to bring outside filmmakers to Disney to get a bit of prestige and who was more prestigious. 
than Steven Spielberg. We're one of Katzenberg's friends, so he says to Spielberg, what do you want to make? Here's some potential projects. And Spielberg goes for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Spielberg is a big fan of classic animation. He produced Animaniacs and Tiny Toon Adventures a few years after Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so he's a bit of a head. Um, a little bit like myself. That's something I've got in common with Steven. So he brought on Zemeckis, and Zemeckis brought on the kind of the other most important person on the movie, Richard Williams, who was the animation director, who Zemeckis considered the best animator in the world. Do you know who Richard Williams is? No. Does anyone know who Richard Williams is? Anyone else on my side? People. <laughs> um, people must know who Richard Williams is. So at this point in time, he was best known for the animated title sequences for some of the Pink Panther movies and a short film based on Christmas Carol that won him an Oscar. And he agreed to do this if Disney helped fund his passion project, a movie called The Thief and the Cobbler. Um, that didn't work out. If you, know anything, if you do know Richard Williams, you know that he spent his entire life trying to make this movie and Disney ended up much more of a hindrance than a help. It's a crying shame. And the other thing about Richard Williams is he refused to work in LA. So production, the majority of the, the animation production moved to a little place I like to call London, England. <laughs> yeah, specifically Camden. Uh, <laughs> don't know about that. Uh, and they were filming in Elmstree Studios as well, so most of the production's taking place here. The animation work is split between some of Disney's in-house animators in LA, but a lot of it being done in Richard Williams's studio in London. It cost a lot of money. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. It's an expensive lo looking movie. Spielberg's pitch included a $50 million budget. Eisner was not settling for that. He whittled them down to 30 million, and then the cost just rose to 30 million anyway because Richard Williams just could not stop animating. Um, so he had a very demanding and intensive progress, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. Uh, Eisner was furious when he found out how expensive this was becoming. He wanted to shut down production or at very least kick Williams off. But Katzenberg talked him round. And that, that's pretty cool from Katzenberg because he has made some pretty ropey decisions, um, both before this and after this. This is the man behind Quibi. <laughs> This is the man behind um, a failed submarine restaurant called Dive, which was inside a giant submarine um, in, in LA, and it only sold submarine sandwiches. <laughs> and, and every, every like, 45 minutes, um, these screens in the windows would start playing, and a sound would come on. Someone would start shouting, dive, dive, dive. And the restaurant would start kind of shaking, and it was like, like you were diving in a submarine. And people didn't want to eat there. <laughs> I, all my favorite restaurants shake when you start eating the food. <laughs> um, but, but he made a good call on, on keeping Richard Williams on Who Framed Roger Rabbit and pushing it to its conclusions, so he's okay, I guess. Finally, we have a good Katzenberg move. <laughs> yeah. okay. So a big thing about Who Framed Roger Rabbit is it features tons of cameos from very famous, uh, I, I want to say faces, I guess the characters have faces, uh, from Disney movies past, a lot of the films that we've been watching on this series so far. Um, Disney's very protective of their IP, so how the hell did they get Disney to sign off on these cameos, to be okay with mixing Disney characters in with Looney Tunes characters and Fleischer cartoon characters? What, what was that situation? Was that contentious? Well... So Disney weren't really the main issue because they're funding the movie, they're going to distribute the movie, but Spielberg was a big help because of all his connections in Hollywood in bartering with the people who won the rights to all of these other characters. But there were some stipulations, so for example, 
Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse had to appear for the exact same amount of screen time. It's like Fast and Furious. It's just like Fast and Furious. It's like The Rock has to punch Vin Diesel the same amount of times that Vin Diesel yeah. punches The Rock, and neither of them is allowed to win. So that was what, Mickey and Bugs Mickey Bunny. and Bugs and Daffy and Donald have to be equally as good at piano. Neither of them can be too virtuosic. Daffy and Donald, Tokyo Drift, I'm ready. <laughs> Yeah, so not that difficult, but actually putting these characters on the screen was the difficult part. As you might imagine, it had never really been done. To this degree before, you'd had the likes of Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Pete's Dragon and uh, Dunderklumpen. Dunderklumpen? It's a Swedish movie. Definitely made that up. <laughs> um, I don't know, Dunder, Dunderklumpen. Dunderklumpen. Uh, you're making me want to watch it. The more you say it, the it's more about little, It's about little guys. <laughs> That is going to be the second series of Disney University. It's just going to be called Weird Little Guy. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Just Sam. Um, but yeah, that had to really up the game with this movie. So let's talk about that then. We've never done an episode on our show before where it is mixing live action and animation, especially to this degree. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, Mary Poppins is very famous for that. Um, maybe we'll get to that at some point. But the extent to which the mediums are mixing here is very impressive. So give us a bit of a rundown of how this works on a technical level. So the first thing, I've got some slides here. The first thing that I had to worry about was actually filming the movie, getting the live action footage in there for which they had the shot at first with little kind of rubber models and puppets of the characters to match up the eye lines. Then Hoskins would have to do it himself. That just looks like something from the movie Saw. Uh, <laughs> Hoskins would have to do it himself, kind of remembering where the rabbit was previously. And um, to help him with this, Charles Fleischer, the actor who played Roger Rabbit was on set in a rabbit costume, just out of shot, making rabbit noises the whole time. There he is with Steven Spielberg. And the story goes that like some of the catering and staff and people who like were just kind of watching this movie being made on the sidelines were saying to each other, man, have you seen that Roger Rabbit movie? This, that looks like it's going to suck. That rabbit costume is not <laughs> realistic at all. But of course, the animation came later. They also had to figure out how to move all of the objects, like how is a car rabbit going to smash himself on the head with plates. So they built this sort of freaky robot. <laughs> this freaky robot that like picks up plates and beats itself on the head, which is brutal. Like if AI achieves sentience, that robot's going to be one of the first to turn on, on a, a horrible thing to program a robot to do. Now the plates smash on you. <laughs> yeah, it could go both ways. Uh, yeah, but then the animators, Richard Williams and his crew, had to actually draw the cartoon images over the top so they would trace over the live action footage on paper and then that would be inked on cells. But because this has to completely sync with live action footage and look real, techniques had to be used on this film that weren't typically used in a lot of animation. So for example, the animation on this movie had to be done, this is a jargon term, had to be done on the ones, which means that 24 frames of film per second, every single frame needs a different image to be drawn. Like a new little bit of movement needs yeah, yeah. every frame rather than on the twos, on the it's every other frame. Here he goes. Yeah, I'm freestyling now. <laughs> on the threes, is that a thing? Yeah, it can be. You can do on the six, you can do on the anything depending on how cheap the movie is. <laughs> Because again, like cheaper animated things, they animate on fewer frames so that it's less work to do. And things like Into the Spider-Verse, that's where you have certain characters who are animated on the ones, certain characters who are animated on the twos and threes so that they are literally in different kind of rhythms. 
Hey, this guy. Ben Travis, you can tell that you are a journalist who has to research these things sometimes. By research, I mean tech Sam saying how does this So what was on the ones mean? Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the classic Disney movies are animated on the twos. You can't really tell. It's still too fast for the eye to perceive the individual images. But on this, it had to sync up perfectly with the live action footage. You would notice if they were moving at a different frame rate from the real characters. So there has to be a new frame of animation for every frame of live action footage. And a lot of Richard Williams' animation was already kind of done on one, so he was the right guy to do this. And the other thing they had to do to make it look three-dimensional is for every cell they had to basically do, for every image of a character they had to do four cells. They had to do one with the character and then additional cells to add things like shadows and highlights which would then all be composited together to give this kind of three-dimensional effect to make them look round, to make them look like they actually exist in physical space. So. If you do, so twice as many cells, and then every cell has to be done like four times. That's like eight times the work in, in, a, in a roundabout way. So you can see how the budget for this thing ballooned. OK, well, I think we are nicely set up to get into our discussion of the film itself. We know why it was made. We know how it was made. So now all that's left is to get another one of those do 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 So after three, one, two, three. So, to begin our main discussion of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there is no better place to start than, well, the start of the movie. So let's talk about the Something's Cooking sequence, which, so I only watched this for the first time like two days ago. Uh, I'd never seen this film before, that's partly why we're doing it on this episode, so that Sam forced me to watch it for something, I'm very glad that he did. And... I was delighted when this opened with an all-out cartoon, Looney Tunes-inspired sequence that just felt energetic and hilarious and has so much going on, and it really immediately pulls you into the world that we're going to be in for the rest of this film. Yeah, have you seen a lot of Looney Tunes cartoons? Just bits here and there, kind of growing up. They're, they're on, they're around, but we didn't really have them on video or DVD. And I mean, it doesn't feel like there is an equivalent to Disney Plus where they all live. Yeah, I mean, HBO Max, I think, has a lot of them in the States. Anyway, that's by the by. This does not, this, this does not look like a Looney Tunes cartoon at all. It kind of feels like one, I guess. It captures the energy, but it is far more technically sophisticated than a lot of those. I mean, even Disney, who had a lot more money and, and time to spend on their shorts than the Warner Brothers crew, didn't do anything as, as lavish and as fluid. And with the kind of camera movements, the wild, zany camera movements that you get in that something kook and short, it's just way more dynamic and, and expensive and modern looking than you expect those movies to be, which slightly bugs me, but on the other hand, it makes it genuinely entertaining for a modern audience, so I guess you kind of have to. Yeah, I think my favorite shot from this opening sequence is when uh, Roger Rabbit has been in the oven, he is blasted out of the oven, his bum is on fire, and he does like several laps around the walls of the kitchen, and you have, it's kind of, a, the, the camera's in one place and it's panning left to right, as he zooms around the kitchen, and the sense of perspective in that shot as, as Roger Rabbit's coming towards the camera and he's getting larger and then he's running away from the camera and he's getting smaller. You feel the energy of that shot, but also it's just like technical wizardry that even for the late 80s, you feel like you're seeing some kind of spectacle. And it does really clearly like establish what these cartoons are just by showing one of them. You kind of get the idea that, oh, okay, so it's Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman and for some reason every day this 
woman gives a rabbit charge of a child, <laughs> no matter how badly wrong it goes, and he has to look after the rabbit, and he gets into slapstick shenanigans, and that happens in every single film. And it's like, it's very similar to Tom and Jerry, actually. You've got this domestic setup with the kind of matronly figure who berates the, uh, the, the lead character for not being able to handle the mouse slash baby problem. Yeah, so it's, it's, it clearly places it in the lineage of those kinds of films without having to beat you over the head with it. We understand what something's kooking is. We understand the Baby Herman, Roger Rabbit dynamic. And it's a good laugh. The rabbit gets hurt. <laughs> and that is where that initial part of the sequence ends. And again, watching this for the first time, I was delighted when uh, the fridge falls on Roger Rabbit and then the very sudden shift into the rest of the film. The film constructs this cartoon reality and then immediately deconstructs it before your very eyes. Suddenly you have a 3D fridge. Roger Rabbit is still a cartoon. There are almost like 3D cartoon-style blocks of cheese and a leg of ham that look like they physically exist but also look like painted props. Uh, we get that lovely detail that Roger Rabbit manifests his own birds when he should be manifesting stars. He can manifest bells. It's teaching us the rules of this cartoon reality while also picking apart everything we've just seen in that opening five minutes. Which isn't completely new either, because if you are familiar with a lot of those, especially the Looney Tunes shorts, they treat the characters as actors in those films a lot. Like there's Looney Tunes shorts where Bugs Bunny is like renegotiating his contract. And th th there are some, there's a film called You Ought to Be in Pictures with them um, where Daffy Duck convinces Porky Pig to quit um, so that he can supplant him as the biggest Looney Tunes star. Porky Pig was the biggest Looney Tunes star once upon a time. He, he, he had a sharp fall from grace. Um, and, and it goes into live action and they barter with Leon Schlesinger, the live action uh, producer of the Looney Tunes cartoons. So this, there's a long, long history of this kind of thing, treating cartoon characters like actors. I mean, even back in the day, they would do interviews with like magazines and stuff. It'd be like, oh, you know, we've got the new interview with Hollywood's hottest starlet, Betty Boop. Um, who are you sleeping with, Betty Boop? You know? It's weird question. Yeah, it's a weird question. Yeah, it's a weird question. But Betty Boop's a weird person. She is. <laughs> We're going to get to her. I have never been more jealous of all the things that I missed out before I joined Empire. One thing that happened, I think it was for the Muppets Most Wanted movie. A bunch of my colleagues interviewed Kermit the Frog as Kermit the Frog for the podcast, I think. And, I mean, I would love to do that if that ever came back around. I also don't know if I could handle that or if I'd just immediately break down. I mean, that would have been when it was still good Kermit. It would have. It was before new janky Kermit, who <laughs> we don't speak of him. <laughs> yeah, great turn on The Masked Singer, but other than that, not the best Kermit. Yeah, and it, it works very well with these older cartoon characters. I think The Muppets is the, the most prominent modern-day example. It's definitely fallen in that same lineage, but it works really well in these old cartoons because Bugs Bunny's a different guy in every cartoon, effectively. Sometimes he's in the Middle Ages, sometimes he's a cowboy, sometimes he's um, trying to trick someone into shooting Daffy Duck in the face, but it's always like a slightly different scenario, so it makes sense that like Laurel and Hardy or, or Charlie Chaplin, is just an actor, playing this persona in all these different situations, so they're very much tapping into how these cartoon characters have always been treated, they're just doing it in a much more visible uh, way in this film, a much more sophisticated visually way. So you're talking about how cartoons function in our world, this opening sequence gives us uh, a sense of how cartoons function in that world, so let's talk about that world. So we are in 1947. We're in golden age Hollywood. This is the old studio system. 
uh, a big part of the movie, of the plot of the film, is that change is coming to Hollywood, to California. You feel that everything is in a relatively shaky and transitional space. So what can you tell us about why is this film set in 1947, do you think, and, and what is it playing with there? So um, I think 1937 comes just before a few big developments in the history of Hollywood. I mean, first of all, most prominently, it's, it's like when a lot of these characters were at their peak, although there are some characters in this who appeared after 1947, Ooh. which is a... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Dr. Sam doesn't like it. Yeah, I mean, the, the Coyote and Roadrunner appeared after 1947, which means that Acme wasn't really a huge deal in cartoons. They like, really codified the idea of the Acme company in cartoons. They didn't invent it, but it was, it was, Acme's a bit, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense if the Acme's such a big deal in this movie. Anyway, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. So they obviously had a good reason for setting it in 1947. I think it's partly because a lot of this revolves around the idea that tunes are owned by studios and their contracts are traded or they're given out on loan, which is how stars used to operate, you would be signed on a contract to Warner Brothers or whatever back in the 1940s, and a lawsuit in 1948 kind of broke up the studios on various different levels, um, stopped them from being able to own cinemas and force cinemas to book certain films and stuff like that. And part of that was um, this idea of a star owning, a star being owned by a studio like a footballer or something was phased out. And uh, the other thing is the whole conspiracy in this movie about someone's trying to buy up Los Angeles public transportation to make a freeway, that's kind of based on a thing that really happened. I always forget that's what this movie is about. When, when I watch it, it's like, oh yeah, it's about streetcars. That's, that's weird. It's part conspiracy theory and part based in fact that General Motors were trying to buy up a lot of the public transport and a lot of land to build freeways so that people need to ride cars and buses more and buy tires and things like that so they're going to make more money. And the relevant lawsuit in that case, I think, was in 1948 as well. So it's a couple of reasons, maybe. So it situates us in that time. And if you've ever been to LA, it is an absolute nightmare to, to get around. Uh, we'll come back to this a little bit later when we talk about Judge Doom uh, and his aims. But I do think it's really interesting, this version of Hollywood that we get. And I love how we transition from inside the studio into the back lot. And we see again how cartoons exist in this world, that they are treated like stars, but they are also props. I love the uh, dropped box of Acme sentient instruments that start kind of tooting around on the back lot. Uh, and we just get a sense of cartoons living in this world and being part of that ecosystem. I think watching this uh, as somebody who hadn't seen it before, but who loves Back to the Future, the way that it evokes that time and that especially a time and place in America in a way that feels detailed and kind of lived in, but also purposefully artificial. It does look like a studio backlight. It looks like a studio kind of setup. Reminded me a lot of how they make Hill Valley in Back to yeah. the Future, where it's kind of playing with iconography. It feels real and unreal at the same time. I mean, that's a big hallmark of this whole generation of like blockbuster American directors, that their films are postmodern in the sense that they are nostalgic for the past, but also for the movies of the past. So like a lot of like Raiders of the Lost Ark or um, Star Wars or definitely American Graffiti, you know, by Zemeckis' contemporaries were all about that kind of plastic nostalgia in, in a way. Yeah, and I think it's great. The first guy we see is Dumbo. At yes. the window. So I've got him on loan from Disney, which again doesn't make a 
a load of sense because Dumbo's Dumbo. Dumbo isn't Bugs Bunny where he's a different character in every film. Dumbo is a character with a story that Dumbo's not just going to be in your cartoon chasing Roger Rabbit around. I don't know what the idea... Like, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> he was, forget about it. It's a fun movie. It doesn't matter. I was just happy to see Happy Dumbo for a bit because <laughs> Dumbo is like 65 minutes of pure misery before he can fly and it's over. So I was just happy to get a little bit more of like Happy Dumbo flying around, eating his peanuts. Good for him, man. Did you catch? Did you catch Bill the Lizard? No, Bill the Lizard's in this movie. I've seen it twice now, and neither time did I catch Bill the Bill Lizard. Bill the Lizard shifting the ladder about on the last. Of course he is. That's his whole thing. That's why we love him so much. He's just a lizard with a ladder, doing his business. Uh, but again, wouldn't be created until Alison Wonderland, like five years later. But maybe he was born. And then he got a job, worked his way up as a janitor, and then got his big break, got cast in Alice in Wonderland. On the set that they filmed Alice in Wonderland, he was working some tech stuff. They saw this, <laughs> this lizard with a ladder and thought, that's a weird thing to see, that's going in the movie. <laughs> and we've, got, we've got this part on the call sheet, it says lizard with ladder. Does anyone know any, any lizards with ladders? Bill! My cousin's a lizard with a ladder. Uh, <laughs> we get... A load of lovely cameos in this sequence. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing the brooms from the Sorcerer's Apprentice part of Fantasia, especially with just that guy with the saxophone playing the music. Is that his job, just to play the songs or the brooms do the sweeping? Do the brooms not sweep if the song's not playing? So many questions. Uh, we also have the, the hippo in a tutu from... Hyacinth. Okay, of course she has a name, and of course you know that. Um... <laughs> We also see there's an ostrich. Do you know the name of the ostrich? Uh, Madame Upanova. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you could have said anything, I believe you. Um, I think, was there a little blue bird from Snow White, or was I just digging at that point? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, Eric from Snow White. How did they get him? But if we're talking about some of the cameos in the early part of the film, we have to talk about the Toon Review and the incredible, epic piano battle between Donald Duck and Daffy Duck. Now, you might have got a sense, if you've listened to the podcast so far, about the affinity that Sam has specifically for animated cartoon ducks. We talked about <laughs> Donald a lot when he was perving it up in the wartime uh, package movies. Now, I also know, I don't think this has come up on the main pod yet, but... You are a Daffy Duck guy as well. So I bet you love this scene where the two of them are, are duking it out, having a battle. But I have to ask, who would you choose, Donald or Daffy? Can I get some noise in the room for Donald? Who's a Donald guy? Who's Team Donald? Yeah. <laughs> some noise for Daffy? Who's Team Daffy? Ah, uh, that's almost identical. Very even now. <laughs> you guys need to have a piano battle between you. <laughs> to we need like 80 pianos. Um, I, okay. I love Donald Duck. Of the Disney kind of core cast, he is definitely the best. Ooh. <laughs> so, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, what, Goofy? Um, Goofy's, pretty, Goofy's pretty good. Goofy's a much better character in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Donald is useless in Kingdom Hearts. He's like a wizard. He just gets killed straight away, and you've got to... Um, no, Daffy Duck is the... 
probably my favorite character in fiction. <laughs> <laughs> the lore of Daffy Duck is so rich. Genuinely, I did a conference paper that I was planning on turning into a book and I haven't got around to it yet and probably never will about the history of Daffy Duck and I watched every single short that he was ever in and made like a graph about how his personality changes and stuff like that over time. Daffy Duck is like richer than any character in the history of literature. <laughs> Daffy Duck, he like starts off as this crazy wacky guy like Whoo -hoo -hoo! and that's kind of the version that we'll get in this um, movie where he's like Whoo -hoo -hoo -hoo! which is like a big nutty dude and then Bugs Bunny comes in in real life he's like the big star everyone wants to watch Bugs and Daffy's starts to get a bit jealous and he gets a bit of an ego about him and over the course of the movies Daffy develops from just this wacky fun loving guy to this jealous bitter dude who just wants nothing more than to tear bugs down and steal the spotlight and what an arc like we're talking about oh look at how Tony Stark changed over the course of 12 movies in the MCU look at how Daffy Duck changed over the course of like 70 cartoons it's an evolution so come and see us at the end to pre-order a copy of Sam's book <laughs> on the history of Daffy Duck. So you're picking Daffy, basically. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I will say his sound is less grating to the ears than Donald. I can't stand the way Donald sounds. It goes right through me. I suppose Daffy says, can anybody understand the word this duck is saying? <laughs> what is it with ducks and speech impediments, though? So let's get into the main characters from the movie then because we haven't really talked about roger rabbit much as a character i was not ready for how much i was gonna love roger rabbit himself i was slightly worried that roger was gonna be this kind of they, they were gonna try and like poochie him from the simpsons where he's like he's the cool guy who can do anything and like oh here's a boring situation and then roger rabbit comes in he's like hey you're gonna do some fun stuff <laughs> it's the fonz you thought it was the who fonz, framed fonzie rabbit poochie but a rabbit and that was what i was kind of worried roger rabbit was gonna be and i just fell for how much of a weird little sad sack this guy was he is just a really simple, ineffectual guy, but who's got a lot of talent, and I love his pure heart of like wanting to make people laugh, even if it puts him in grave danger at various turns. He's such an endearing character. I loved him so much. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? I think he's kind of a unique character as well. I was trying to think about like who is the real-life Roger Rabbit, by, and by real life, I mean fictional, but from real, you know what I mean. So like, who is the Roger Rabbit? And it's like, no one's quite like Roger Rabbit. But that mix of like high energy and like pathos and clumsiness. So I think it's like like classic Daffy. He's got like the energy of classic Daffy, but the kind of clumsiness of Goofy and the pathos of like Jack Lemon and Glen Ross or something. Like just a real a real cocktail of those three equally iconic characters. Yeah, I, I mean just the fact that he like how distraught he is over the, the game of patty cake that Jessica <laughs> Rabbit has been playing. And his response to that is to write her a weird love letter in lipstick on a piece of paper. Um, just uh, it was very, very endearing. And I love that moment as well where he like launches himself out of the window, through the blind, out of the window, leaving that perfect outline. And that really just excellent little line on top, the little cherry on top of, well, he took that well. <laughs> Yeah, he has to be lovable, right? Because a lot of those cartoon characters, a lot of those cartoon characters aren't built to sustain stories for longer than seven minutes. And a lot of them are kind of not great people. Like, again, like Daffy, pretty awful dude. Donald, pretty awful dude. I could probably watch Goofy for like 90 minutes, maybe. Doesn't mean he's the best. 
like there was some kind of I don't know, like a goofy, a goofy movie. Yeah, ah, maybe maybe an extremely see. goofy movie. <laughs> Whoa, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah, but Roger, they do have to give him that visual depth, but also the depth of character to sustain that. And I think it is the kind of the sadness and the pathos of it. Like, oh man, this guy. Something that is a much bigger deal in the the uh, novel is that he is like the second banana in this cartoon series. This is the Baby Herman cartoon, and Roger is kind of a presented as a supporting character in the same way as like we call them the Roadrunner cartoons, but really the coyote is the main character. That's kind of what this is. I don't know how well that comes across, but he, yeah, he's not he's not like a superstar. He's not beloved. He's not on that level of Bugs Bunny. He idolizes Goofy, and I think that's important to keep him grounded. I mean, there is so much heart to Roger Rabbit as a character, but I also found myself falling for Eddie Valiant as well. That guy has so much heart. And I loved his journey through the film when we meet him. He has that great entrance uh, where he kind of strides onto the, the set and he just crumbles tunes. <laughs> and you just get a sense straight away of this guy's baggage. And it's, the, as you say, the pathos of that incredible gag that his brother was killed by a falling <laughs> piano is hilarious, but also horrible at the same time because you understand how real that is in this world. At the same time as when um, Acme is killed and you see the corner of the safe has been like crashed into the floor and think that is that is real damage. That is horrifying stuff. And that, yeah, Eddie's brother probably went through a similar fate. Yeah, you get that great pan across the different photographs on his desk of like, oh, him and his brother started off in like clown college or whatever, and then became policemen with like clown noses, and then it's like, oh, um, started the detective agency, acquitted Goofy of his spying accusations. There's a headline, like, Goofy's like acquitted of spying allegations. Like, oh. Did they pick that? Is he just like a, an odd, uh, Goofy's an odd guy anyway. <laughs> does, does that just make him suspicious for that <laughs> Um, I mean, he wouldn't be, I wouldn't hire, if I was like the Nazis or whatever, I wouldn't hire, well, it was the 1940, who else is it going to be? I wouldn't hire Goofy. He's not going to get the job done. I would hire Bugs. Bugs would be a great spy, dressed up as a woman, coming in, just like, like, why hello, Mr. Roosevelt. <laughs> Mm, hey, good. Uh, Bugs Bunny would be a great spy, less so goofy. I already can't remember how we got here. <laughs> Eddie Valiant is a great character. Uh, there we go, back on track. Treads a fine line between parody of like your Humphrey Bogart noir detective and genuine kind of iteration of it and actually evokes the sympathy that we need for this character while also being somewhat silly. And extremely silly by the end, has a great arc in the movie as well. He learns to laugh, or he relearns to laugh. And yeah, I think that's the thing you feel as well. I, I think a lot of people can relate to being somebody who has a lot of joy and life in them and having that eroded over time by horrible life circumstances. I think that really kind of brings you into his kind of world, into his shoes, especially the relationship that he clearly used to have with Dolores as well, that this guy had so much and that he's a really lonely guy. He's a full-on alcoholic. There yeah, is some yeah, like yeah. adult stuff in this, in this film. And I think Bob Hoskins is perfect at playing that because he gets the gruffness and the toughness of it completely, but you also just believe that this guy is like soft in the center. It was nearly Harrison Ford. Oh. Oh. I mean, love Harrison Ford, but I can't. Blade Runner, Neo Noir. Yeah, okay, I can see that a little bit more, but even then he has like a steeliness. Yeah. Thing. 
Spielberg wanted Harrison Ford, too expensive. Eddie Murphy was apparently asked, but he, uh, he didn't understand the concept. He, he was like, we're so, so like cartoons and people, that sounds like, that sounds like a load of, can I say bullshit? <laughs> Go on. He said, he said that sounds like a load of bullshit. Um, yeah, so we ended up with Bob Hoskins, character actor, not a major star, really, really good at pretending to be interacting with cartoons, which is difficult. Maybe, I don't know if Harrison Ford could do that. And we'll never know. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think he's got plans to start doing He that. made that movie with a CGI dog. I didn't watch it. What was that? It's like Harrison Ford. It was like a couple of years ago. Harrison Ford's sad. He's in the mountains. He's got a CGI dog. Right. I remember. Call of the Wild. Call of the Wild. Of the Has wild. anyone seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Is he good at interacting with the dog, giving it fake pets and? Well, that, that's all right. Yeah. Set, that dog was a man. That is oh, Terry right, Notary. Okay. Uh, who, if you've seen Nope, he played the chimp in Nope. This is a guy who, his whole thing is like motion capturing animals. So if you look at any behind the scenes stuff from Call of the Wild, it's Harrison Ford on a mountain and then a guy in a gray suit crouching down on all fours <laughs> like this. And Harrison Ford having to act for his life to pretend that this is a lovable dog. And the caterers were like, have you seen that Harrison Ford dog movie? <laughs> That's, I just can't, I, I just, that dog does not look good. <laughs> he looks unwell. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I think my favorite scene between uh, uh, Eddie and Roger is uh, when they've been handcuffed together for a considerable amount of time in the movie, and then it becomes clear that, uh, that Roger can slip out of those handcuffs at any time. And he has that great line uh, <laughs> when Eddie confronts him about it. And he <laughs> says, oh, what, you could have got out at any time? And he says, not at any time, only when it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> to pause the movie for five minutes. <laughs> it was funny. But the other character we need to talk about is Jessica Rabbit, who has a significant part in this film as well, who is playing on those kind of femme fatale tropes. Yeah. Noir, but also is a, let's say, an interesting character. I'm not necessarily sure you would do that today, the way that she is animated, the way that she is kind of a spectacle, shall we say? Yeah. There's some interesting quite complex gender politics going on there, I would say. Let's unpack it, us two fellows. Yes, let's <laughs> two men unpack um, the gender politics. So obviously Jessica it Rapp. is a parody of those noir femme fatale characters, your Lauren Bacalls, your Barbara Stanix, but more than that, really, it's a parody of some of the kind of sexier cartoon characters from the 1940s, Betty Boop, but um, is it Red Hot Riding Hood, the Tex Avery cartoon, the one where the wolf is like, oh, you know that the wolf from God, people need to watch more cartoons. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's like my students. <laughs> um, so it's got a sexy. I haven't seen any of that either. Oh, come Sexy, sexy Red Riding Hood lady. They didn't show this one on Cartoon Network. So sexy Red Riding Hood with a wolf, and so that's kind of what this is most clearly nodding to. But it's more, it's more exaggerated than even that. You can kind of think of it as like a drag performance. Like it's men who are animating this character, designing this character, performing the exaggerated gendered hypersexualized attributes of a woman, like a lot of drag performers. But I guess the difference here is that she is meant to be titillating. There are long, she is the male gaze given flesh or given ink. You know, this is a character created to titillate men. And it is a parody, but that doesn't mean it's not also innocent of the things that it is parodying. But it's interesting, like, is there, is there an actual point to be made here? Because Jessica isn't a woman. 
Jessica's not bad, she was just drawn that way. It's a line from the movie. <laughs> um, I did, I'm not going to do the voice for that one. So she, like Roger Rabbit, has been created to make people laugh. She's create, been created to do one thing, to be sexy, and she can't escape that. She always has to perform that sexuality, even when she's trying to acquit her husband of murder. She's got to use the methods of which she is capable, because that's how she was designed. That's how she was drawn. She's got to play the femme fatale. And I don't know, maybe that's some kind of can be read as some kind of commentary on the way that Hollywood would female stars were treated at the time as objects, as objects for the male gaze, and obviously still treated today in a lot of cases. Like, she is created for this, she can't escape it, and she is sympathetic for that reason, maybe. But yeah, I don't think you could do it today. Having said that, when we get a lasting legacy, she's still around <laughs> in, various, in various forms. One thing, I genuinely don't know if you have something for this, but uh, the thing that struck me when she enters, she has that really famous entrance in the film on stage at the Toon Review, and the way that her dress looked, the sparkling effect on the dress, it was like the texture of that sparkle wasn't moving even when she was. It was like a weird, interesting effect. Do you, do you know how they did that? Yeah, it's, it's, those, it's those layers. It's the extra added layers again, those overlays again. Very, very intensive process to try and match that to the lighting in the room when it was being filmed. So we've set up all of our major characters, apart from Judge Doom. We're going to get to him. I want to talk about one of the most gratifying sequences in this film, the one that... I mean, I was, I was with this film the whole time. I was loving it. But the moment when Eddie enters Toontown, the whole film just absolutely ratchets up in, in energy and excitement. And there's so much to unpack in this sequence. So where do you want to begin with Eddie in Toontown? Him driving through the tunnel, I love that moment that he just sort of has to sit outside the tunnel for a minute and just steal himself to go in. Again, a great character moment. And you're dri he's driving through this tunnel, he's driving in this kind of transitional liminal space on the way to Toontown. And as soon as you see those red curtains, you're like, ah, oh, here we go. This is going to be something pretty great. <laughs> yeah, did it blow your mind? Did it take your head off? It's quite a, quite a shift. Yeah, it's, it's a real visual shift and a, and a tonal shift. And I think the film has set you up at that point to be ready for that. It's been so much fun seeing cartoon characters in our world and seeing them interact with live action people and live action environments to then suddenly have our live action character in a fully cartoon world and mm -hmm. see the yang to that ying of how does he operate? How does a real live action person operate in a world where the laws of reality of physics are bouncy and rubbery and cartoony? Yeah, much like Michael Jordan at the end of Space Jam. We were all thinking it. <laughs> You've seen Space Jam. Of course I've seen Space Jam. I've seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I haven't seen Red Hot Riding Hood. Of course I've seen Space Jam. Um, yeah, he kind of takes on these cartoonal properties, gets crushed by a lift and turns into a big flat fellow and stuff like that. Um, subject to a whole amazing raft of cameos in that sequence where he's driving through Toontown. Lots, it really hits you with all of the cameos at once. Like it's me a slow build and then suddenly, oh, there's Mr. Toad. Oh, there's um, Danny the Lamb from... So Dear to My Heart, Disney's second live action movie um, about a boy who has a lamb, but the lamb's a dickhead. That's the twist. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I'm sure that was the pitch in the room. Okay, Walt. Yeah. What if there was a lamb? Lamb, but it was a dickhead. Some animals are just jerks. And um, there's like that, the, the, the merry dwarfs. Not the seven dwarfs, the merry dwarfs from another much older Disney cartoon. Are they, who were the little wiggly, were they the that's wiggly the, Fleischer the guys? Dwarfs, yeah, so wiggly. I saw that and I thought that was Fleischer cartoons. It's, it's Disney. I mean, people associate that style with uh, Fleischer closely now, but like there were a lot of Disney cartoons that kind of looked like that when Obiworks was still at the, we'll probably talk about Obiworks, doesn't matter. He went, he, when that director was still at the studio, they're doing a lot of the rubber hose stuff, yeah. There's not many Fleischer characters in this, actually. Um, Betty Boop is in it. Pop is not in it, even though just a few years earlier, Disney produced a little movie I like to call the Robert Altman Popeye movie with Robin Williams that couldn't get him in for this. One of Sam's greatest obsessions. I recently went on a work trip to Malta, and in Malta they have the Popeye village. They like built a Popeye village set in Malta, and then at the end of the movie they just left it there and now it's a museum. And as soon as I said Popeye Museum. As soon as I said Sam, I'm going to Malta on this work trip, he was like, you have to go to the Popeye Museum. (laughs) I did not make it to the Popeye Museum. It was on all the way on the other side of the island. Some people say that if you pull up the paving slabs you can still find pounds of cocaine hidden under there from (laughs) the production of the Popeye movie, but Maybe that'll have to be a Disney versus trip at some point. We'll go to Malta and we'll tour the uh, the Popeye set. Yeah, but this is also the sequence where we get, as you teed up before, a sequence where we have Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny in the same shot at the same moment, and as you said, really for the same amount of time. Is that why they appear at the same time? Because it's easy to make yeah. sure they have the same amount of of runtime in this film if they're both in the same shot. Yeah, and I, I noticed you didn't ask me which one of those is my favourite because come on. <laughs> You're a Bugs Bunny guy. Yeah, it's not Bugs Bunny. Mickey Mouse, I've said this many times. Mickey Mouse sucks as a, <laughs> as a character. Who cares? Mickey Mouse, he's, he's great as an icon, great as like a historical figure, but he's up there like, oh, I don't know, Bugs, maybe I'll just go give him a spare person. Who cares? Shut up. Give him the tire. That's what I want to see. We want to see Bugs Bunny trick someone. We want to see him being a stinker. Yeah, it's it's, it's a real in that moment how Bugs Bunny is doing most of the mischief and Mickey Mouse is just egging him on. Yeah, Mickey Mouse isn't allowed to do mischief because he needs to sell toys and shit. <laughs> but there are other kind of fun moments of playing with that cartoon reality when Eddie is being chased by Lena Hyena uh, along the road and he grabs the middle of the road and sort of swerves it round into the wall so that she runs into the wall. That stuff was tons of fun. I want to ask about the song that's playing in smile, the background. Smile, Danya, smile. Which you were singing the whole time we were backstage. Yes, when we were prepping for the show, you were just humming that to yourself. What is that song? Where did that come from? It is from a very early, uh, well, Merry Melodies cartoon from Warner Brothers starring one of their forgotten characters, Foxy. Before Bugs, before Daffy, before Porky, there was Foxy. And what Foxy used to do was he would star in these sort of like early music videos because Warner Brothers make cartoons, but they also own a lot of music and they sell sheet music. So they would make, if we have this song called Smile Down Your Smile, we'll make a cartoon about it and Foxy will, will dance to it and everyone will want to run out and buy it. And I, th- I think it's appropriate for this because it gets across the essence of what tunes are. They are here to make you smile, but also it sounds Pretty sinister when you just say it. Smile, darn you. Smile. And it's like they were trying to force this happiness on this very reluctant guy. So I think it's a pretty pretty good choice. So out of this sequence, we head back into the real world. And I think it's time that we very briefly talk about a candidate that I have 
for Disney Versity Legends. Now, these are the minor characters who we obsess over on this show. At the front of the stage right now, we have the Rattigan Beanbag here. We have the Scuttle Plush, a recent addition uh, to the, to the uh, Legends canon and to my house, courtesy of Sam. I loved Benny. The ben cab. Carr was just a wonderful guy. He's, uh, this is what I thought maybe the end of Titan was going to be. Uh, a, some kind of sentient car creature, which, I mean, if you watch that movie and you listen to this podcast, that is one hell of a crossover. Um, <laughs> Benny has to be... He's, he's, he's walking here. <laughs> driving here. I'm driving here. Oh, yeah. Now, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm bothered about Benny, but then when you reminded me that he has a New York accent, that he's very much walking here, how am I supposed to deny that? Yeah. Um, there's a British cartoon series from kind of around this period called Bubble and Squeak about a man, a human man, who was father to a taxi child. <laughs> so very similar to Titan. And also, possibly, that's the inspiration. It wasn't, but possibly that was the inspiration for banging the cab. I felt so sorry for Benny when Benny's tires get dipped and then he has to, like, walk on his oh. saggy little... T- and you, he's going, ooh, 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 the whole time. It's pretty freaky. What about Baby Herman? Oh, Baby Herman is a TDLF through and through. <laughs> he is a horrifying nightmare guy. Why is there, like, a 50-year-old baby drinking booze and smoking cigars, and he's also kind of walking here. Why are there so many of those accents <laughs> in this movie? Yeah, in LA, I don't know. It's, it's just a funny accent. Yeah, okay, we're not here for him. Truly disgusting little freak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was not a fan of, of Baby Herman. He was kind of horrifying. But are we all in agreement that, that Benny uh, should be a Disneyversity legend? Because if we are, I think we have to do a little... There we go. He is officially in the canon. Thank you for the one person who clapped. All right. We have just over half an hour left. <laughs> what are we going to do? Let's, let's kind of whiz through some stuff. Let's talk about um, the ending of the film and Judge Doom, because this is really where Judge Doom comes into his own and embodies what I think a lot of this film is about, kind of plot-wise and in terms of its form, which is blending cartoon and live action. That reaches its zenith when we get the reveal towards the end that Judge Doom is a toon, but he's also a live-action guy at the same time. And it feels like the film is all about finding a midpoint between Mm. those things. As you maybe teed up before, the end of this film, the, the end of Eddie's arc, when he is fighting back against the weasels, is he has to tap back into that cartoonish part of himself. He has to do his routine to make the weasels laugh themselves to death. And so he has to embrace being a tune inside. He has to embrace cartoonish elements in order to succeed. And then you have Judge Doom, who is kind of the opposite of that, of this tune who is trying to be human and becomes this grotesque thing. He's a lot like your man Rattigan over there in the sense that he is sort of a member of an oppressed group. Rattigan is a rat who wants to be a mouse and he's masquerading as a mouse and he's affecting high-class airs. But at the climax, he sheds the mask and he's like, oh, I'm a rat now, I'm an angry rat, you know? 
<laughs> that is a famous line of dialogue from the end of The Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> I'm a rat now. I'm a rat. I'm an angry rat. That was Vincent Price. That was pretty <laughs> um, So he's above his station. He's impersonating a member of the ruling class and therefore kind of subtextually reinforcing the hegemony that we should stick to our place in this world. Rats are rats. They are not mice. Toons are toons. They are not men. And Judge Doom is impersonating a high-class member of society. He's got this whole conspiracy, which is in a way, it, it kind of is another way to elevate him into the, the realm of the rich and powerful. But when faced with failure, he reveals his true nature, reverts to his basest impulses. So even though the movie ends with the wall between Toontown and the human world being broken down, this kind of reinforces the message that Toons and humans are different and separate and that Toons should know their place, which is kind of problematic if we are, as the movie regularly does, drawn parallels between Toons and real-life oppressed minorities of the time. So like, much like black performers in the golden age of Hollywood, these tunes are seen as valuable as entertainers, but not respected as people. And there's a lot of that in the history of animation. So for example, there's a Fleischer cartoon, a Betty Boop cartoon, where Louis Armstrong is filmed in live action playing jazz music, famous jazz musician. And then in the cartoon, his head is imposed on a African cannibal chasing Betty Boop around trying to eat her. And it's like, we respect you as an entertainer. We want the value of your art in our film, but we do not respect you as a person. We're going to deploy this in a racist way. And you've got like the Cotton Club in Harlem, whereby the patrons are all white, but the staff and performers are all black. And that's very, I mean, that is, that is the Income Paint Club. That's what the Income Paint Club is based on. And I just feel if I have one criticism of this movie, not that the funny rabbit movie has to make a point about racism, but if you are going to deliberately invoke those racist practices, maybe you should be using animation to say something about racism and not racism to say something about animation. It's not like, like anima the tunes aren't respected and to get that across, we're gonna draw on the history of, of racism in America. And then to cap it off with this Judge Doom thing where it's like, man and tune should not be one. You can't like cross over between these two societies. I don't know, it's not. Yeah, I don't know. Wouldn't have gone that way. But I do think it's always, I think it's a cool scene. It's cool when he goes flat and then he gets big and long and he's got a chainsaw for an arm and all that. But yeah, I would have liked them to be a little bit more thoughtful about how they deploy those kinds of potentially problematic tropes. I mean, for me, ever the optimist, the thing that I was left with was, again, in, in Eddie's arc of him bringing a bit of that joy back, of him kind of learning to love cartoons again and... Roger Rabbit's thing the whole time of just like my I, I want to make, make people laugh that's what I do that is the the thing that kind of saves us all and Eddie being able to laugh again by the end of the film feels like a, uh, a a heartwarming place for me for the end of this journey for those two characters together as you say uh, at the end of the film that wall is broken down between the worlds uh, at least briefly and we get an influx another influx of cameos uh, we've got Mickey and Minnie and Pinocchio and Bambi and all sorts. And that was just a visual delight to have all these characters sharing the screen once more. Yeah, it was. Loads of great characters. Let's see how many of them you, Ben Travis, can name. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? <laughs> Droopy? Great. Droopy. All right. Okay. Okay. Quick fire. Who's that? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. I know who he is, but I don't know his name. Anybody? Can you see him? Speedy Gonzalez. Again, created four years after this movie was set. <laughs> 
Who's that on the right there? Uh, Foghorn Leghorn. It's the quizzes for Ben. <laughs> you get your chance when he gets it wrong. It is, I see, it is Foghorn Leghorn. Okay. Who's that? Is it's a happy cow who looks like it's maybe from Steamboat Willie? It's yeah, it's that era. It's Clarabelle Cow. Sorry, sorry, I, I knew I said it. Who's that? It's Clarabelle Cow, Mickey's third closest female friend. Oh, wow. That is a bonus episode waiting to happen. Who's that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear that genuinely, so uh, shooty McPistol man. <laughs> Seriously? You really didn't watch any Looney Tunes cartoons? Not really, no, and, and they don't start by saying, with all the names of the characters, do they? <laughs> it's your Samity Sam. Very often they do. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Oh, that's Peter and the Wolf. Well, Peter of Peter and the Wolf. Is the wolf? Is that the wolf behind him? That's a, uh, that's a different wolf. Okay. They appear in the wolf. He knows it because it was on the podcast. I was checking if he could remember. And that is the big bad wolf from the Three Little Pigs short. Right. Who's that on the right? Just seeing from his back. From the back? Yeah, come on, you know him. Um, uh, uh, do not shout it out. <laughs> Please do shout it out. I don't shout it out. Some police guy? He's All right, hang on. I'll show you what he looks like from the front. Okay. See if you can get this guy's name. I've never seen this guy in my entire <laughs> life. No, is it Pete? It's Pete! It's Pete! <laughs> yes. Fourth time lucky. <laughs> Finally, I've remembered who Pete is. This has come up on the podcast, mate. Right, that's the end of the quiz. Okay, I genuinely didn't know that was going to happen. I'm relieved of that. <laughs> you got what? Like, I, can't, I wasn't counting like three out of six. That's like, that's a third, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to edit this part of the podcast when it goes out and I'm going to get all of them right. Uh, but that brings us to the end of our main discussion of the film. So once more, I'm going to need a little bit of a... Thank you so much, guys. Okay, Sam, we have 25 minutes left. We're on track. <laughs> oh, are we? All right, okay, good. Uh, so that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the strange, creepy, unsettling stuff that didn't make the movie. So this was based on a novel that had the much less catchy title, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? It just does not sound right as I'm saying it. There it is. Uh, so who... <laughs> Wow, uh, that is a, uh, a rabbit in a trench coat uh, taking us back to McGruff, who is another <laughs> former uh, mention on the show. So who censored that title for the movie? Uh, what happens in this book? How similar is it to... It's not very similar. <laughs> Tornally, it's not very similar. So yeah, Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary Wolfe. There's the other cover they did too there. So, help, I'm stuck in a mystery of double crosses, steamy broads and killer cream pies. Both of those people are Gary Wolf. <laughs> Did he demand that? So there, there is a man on each of these covers. Uh, they look very different from each other. Yeah, he's, he's got a beard in one of them. He's beardy in one, he's not so beardy That's... in the other. So he just demanded that he be the guy on the cover? Yeah, one of the covers is a lot more sinister. Uh, well, they're both quite sinister, but one of them I think is deliberately sinister, and the other is creepy because it's got this big, wide-eyed, furry Roger Rabbit in little dungarees. I am not indeed to this Roger Rabbit in the way that I was to the one in the film. I think I would uh, run away from him very quickly. So the novel is set in the, well it's the modern day, it's set in the 1980s and the characters in the novel are not from animated cartoons. They are from newspaper cartoons. 
which somehow makes even less sense, like logically. So they, these characters get photographed, they pose for photographs to make the comic strips, and their artists are referred to as their photographers. So, for example, Snoopy is, is in it, and Charles Schultz is his photographer. He takes photos of Snoopy in different weird poses. You know who Snoopy is. You've got a shirt with Snoopy. I've got a shirt with Snoopy on. He's yeah. skiing, he's flying around <laughs> in a plane. So we get cameos from a bunch of other comic strip characters that I'm sure Ben is intimately familiar with, like Blondie and Dagwood. Oh, they're my best friends. Yeah, uh, Dagwood, as you know, loves sandwiches. <laughs> That's what he's all about. Beetle Bailey. I've heard of Beetle Bailey. He, he was part of a weird, there's a whole land uh, universal yes. in Florida. This like really cartoony land. Cartoon Lagoon. Cartoon Lagoon, there we go. And I was walking through it going, I have never heard of any of these cartoons in my entire <laughs> life. Yeah, so Dagwood is also there. He's got a sandwich stall. Um, Hagar the Horrible. Sounds like a nice guy. He's like a Viking. Dick Tracy as well is in there, who is a, a few years after this would be a Disney movie with Warren Beatty and Madonna. Very similar to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Very similar to the Popeye movie as well, in many ways. We'll do that on the With podcast the one day. that was consumed during his production. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, so in this, Eddie Valiant is investigating Roger Rabbit's murder. Wait, so who killed Roger? That's what censored means. Oh. That's... If you kill a cartoon, I guess you censor him. So uh, he's what? He's barely in the book? Well... Roger, the toons in this are able to create clones of themselves to just kind of, oh, squeeze them out. What? Yeah. <laughs> they they pop out clones of themselves to use as stunt doubles in these photographic comics. Cartoons, right? What? So, and they usually dissolve in about an hour, like the Little Mermaid. They turn to form, and. <laughs> But this is what Roger Rabbit's double manages to stay around for a couple of days to help solve his own murder. The Toons, because they're cartoon characters, don't talk. They have speech balloons that emerge above their heads. Um, so Roger's final speech balloon was left behind, and that's a key piece of evidence. It turns out that Roger killed his boss, Rocco de Greasy, great name, and tried to frame Eddie Valiant for the murder. But in the process of planting evidence on Eddie Valiant, he was shot and killed by a genie who lives in his kettle. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. Well, um, that's Roger's kettle. Roger has a kettle with a genie in it. Yeah. A genie... What, does he just wish for hot water whenever he needs it? He... <laughs> He wished to be a famous cartoon character and to be married to a hot babe. And he did that without knowing. He didn't know there was a genie in his kettle. He just said one day, oh, I wish I had a hot wife. And the genie was like, oh, I'll, I'll give him a hot wife. But then when he discovered there was a genie in his kettle, the genie was like, I'm out of here, shot him. <laughs> that's genie typical method of murder for a genie. No other way he could have killed him. Yes, that's the... That's the mystery. It's one of those mysteries where there is absolutely no way you could have solved that, given the evidence provided. A genie did it. In this movie, it's like, oh, who? Who could it be? In this, who do you think framed Roger Rabbit? Was it his wife? Was it the guy in the big black trench coat with the, the, the big scary hat? You know, the terrifying guy? Could it have been him? He's melting people and his <laughs> yes. name is Judge Doom. <laughs> Judge Doom, people. Could it have been him? You can figure it out. Who censored Roger Rabbit? That's a, whoa, that's a scratcher. Ryan Johnson, Glass Onion, your move. <laughs> 
Well, this sounds horrifying and I'm definitely not going to read it. So uh, that's good to know. Let's get on to the reception of the film. So what did critics say at the time about Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yes, this movie was beloved, uh, critically lauded at the time. Janet Maslin, New York Times. A film whose best moments are so novel, so deliriously funny and so crazily unexpected that they truly must be seen to be believed. Washington Post called it a definitive collaboration of pure talent. Roger Ebert said, sheer enchanted entertainment from the first frame to the last. Um, yeah, beloved, pretty much no bad reviews. Lots of money. Yeah, it's a lovely say, money. I mean, this was a massive box office hit, right? Yep. Rave reviews. Like, who doesn't want to go and see Roger Rabbit when this comes out? $150 million domestic, $350 million worldwide. This is 1988 money. The 20th biggest movie of all time when it was released. Wow. The second biggest movie of 1988 behind... Uh, was there... Rain Man? Boom! Ah, this guy's been on Wikipedia as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, $350 million. That buys a lot of Diet Cokes. So, <laughs> everyone involved was happy. <laughs> a big Diet Coke party all around. Uh, unlike the one in the, <laughs> the Popeye, Popeye movie, which yeah. was a different kind of Coke, Coke party. <laughs> So let's briefly give our thoughts then. Shall I go first as the person who hadn't seen this film before? Uh, I think, as you can tell, it was an absolute delight. I've watched it twice, and uh, I will happily watch this again in the future. I loved how it felt as a Robert Zemeckis movie, as I said, the way that it reminded me tonally a lot of Back to the Future, even though it's doing pretty different things. The energy of the cartoon reality um, I found just really visually appealing. Uh, the film barrels along plot-wise, and I wasn't ready, as I said, for how much I was going to enjoy Roger Rabbit and Eddie Valiant, especially as characters, and enjoy their partnership. And uh, it feels like a bit of a shame that they never teamed up again, which might be something that we talk about in a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah, it very well might. Yeah, this is one of my favourite live-action movies, which feels like a cheat, um, as, as it is Back to the Future, which you would think would make Robert Zemeckis one of my favourite directors. Until Thursday. <laughs> Are we allowed to say the worst thing that happened on Thursday? <laughs> Maybe I'll cut that bit out. We'll see. We'll see. If, um, it's a good movie. I love the movie. It's, a, it's just a place... Where I, where I like to be. You can watch it again and again because it is, it's like a, a lot of my favorite live action movies are horrible. And I'm like, I wouldn't stick them on anytime I feel bad, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the Babadook, which also is about a kind of living cartoon character in a way. Yeah, but I, I don't stick those movies on when I need a good time. This is an absolute all time, like good time movie for me. I just want to live in this world. I want to be friends with Daffy and Donald and Bugs and in, in my head, you are. Yeah. You know, they're your best mates. Be friends. I want to be friends with Pete. <laughs> Wait, who's Pete? That was Pete. That's supposed to be a Pete noise, isn't it? <laughs> that's what Pete. I'm going to get you. That's what he says. Again, you could make that up, and I'd just believe <laughs> you. Um, yeah, I can totally see why, A, you were desperate for me to watch this, and I'm so glad that I did, and B, uh, why I probably should have seen it before we did our Chippendale Rescue Rangers episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll do another one now. Maybe we'll do it. He comes in straight on Chippendale Rescue Rangers saying, Sam, at the start of this movie, they're filming a Chippendale cartoon, and then the camera pulls back, and they're on a live-action set with a direct... Sam, surely nothing like this has ever been done before. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then I saw your face <laughs> on the uh, on the screen going, yeah, this has been done. This has been done. Uh, okay, so that brings us to Lasting Legacy. Now, this isn't a Disney movie, as we've said, but there's all kinds of crossovers happening in this movie. Uh, and I think that went beyond the film itself, too. So in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, what is the lasting legacy of Roger Rabbit. So probably the biggest kind of most iconic thing to emerge from the movie Roger Rabbit is the dance. The Roger, is anyone familiar with the Roger Rabbit dance? Uh, was this in the film? No, well, it's, I, I guess, well, no. <laughs> it's kind of how he moves, I guess. He's got his, like, his, his arms. His, That's just dancing. <laughs> Jumping around while moving your arms and your legs is all dancing. Your, you've got to move your arms kind of in and out, and then you've got to kind of walk, like, kind of jog backwards a bit. Okay. It's popularized by Bobby Brown. They reference it in the Chip and Dale movie. They go, we were doing the Roger Rabbit with Roger Rabbit, and Roger Rabbit's doing the Roger Rabbit. Paula Abdul was there. I remember in, that. In Chip and Dale. So... Uh, how quickly after the film does this become a thing? Yeah, almost immediately, yeah. It was a huge pop culture <laughs> was, phenomenon. Was this a Katzenberg move? He had so much Diet Coke and he just started moving like this and then that became the, Roger, the Roger Rabbit, Rabbit dance. So what's interesting about Roger Rabbit is the Lassen legacy and the length of the legacy of this movie is kind of restricted because this is a character that is co-owned by Disney and Amblin. And... Steven Spielberg has not always been mates with Disney. Um, this is skipping ahead, but in the mid-90s, Katzenberg and Disney had a big falling out. That's a spoiler. And Spielberg was very much Team Katzenberg. They founded DreamWorks together. So there's not, it's not like, they're not very simpatico, Spielberg and Disney, all the time. So there's been, after a point in time, we stopped getting loads of Roger Rabbit stuff. But for a few years after the movie came out, it was Roger Mania. And so there he is. Um, they tried to kind of incorporate him into the Mickey Mouse family. This is the opening of Walt Disney Studios Park in Florida, and they're all like putting their hands in concrete. So, did they actually do that for real? Because the thought of concrete on these on the very soft Mickey Mouse gloves <laughs> is making me feel a bit. Annoyed. Yeah. So it's like, oh, it's Mickey and all of his best friends, Donald and Minnie, Goofy and Roger Rabbit, and he's just Roger kind of there looming in the background. Yeah. So for a long time, they were trying to really incorporate him into this whole gang. He appears very prominently a few months after the movie in a TV special to celebrate Mickey's 60th birthday. And it's Mickey Mouse's birthday, they're doing a big show on TV, and Roger Rabbit's in charge of the cake, but he accidentally puts a stick of dynamite in there instead of a candle. <laughs> We've all done it. And it explodes, it's a whole thing. And look, I really can't tell you how this works in terms of the butterfly effect, but down the line, this leads to a scene where Mickey Mouse goes to the Cheers bar. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's Mickey Mouse with, with Ted Danson. He sings the happy birthday song to Rebecca while Frasier plays the piano. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the bar where everyone knows your name doesn't really work when everybody knows Mickey Mouse's name. He's oh, Mouse. So you had to, so, no, I can't, okay, no, so what happens is, <laughs> Mickey Mouse tries to clean up the exploded cake by using the sorcerer's hat from Fantasia to clean everything up, but then the wizard from Fantasia is like, you can't use magic frivolously like that to punish you. I'm going to teleport you into the real world, and no one's going to know who Mickey Mouse is anymore. So he goes to Cheers, and they're all like, who's this little guy? <laughs> What's going on with his head? But he sounds like he would do a banging rendition of Happy Birthday, Frasier, hit the keys. Um, <laughs> so... 
Yeah, this was, we were really trying to push them. The three short films were released in cinemas in front of big Disney movies between 1989 and 1993. These are all on Disney+. Plus. Tummy Trouble, Coaster Rabbit, and Trail Mix-Up. And it is that kind of... It's what the short at the start of Roger Rabbit is. Is Baby Herman in them? Oh, he's in all of them, yeah. Oh, he does, but he doesn't do the adult thing, though, because it's the proper cartoon. I, okay, no, so he's just a, he's a normal baby. Okay. You don't hear babies, Ben. No, uh, Baby <laughs> Herman, the normal baby... I mean, I wouldn't. It's not a top of my list on Disney Plus, but I'm not actively avoiding it. Let's talk a little bit about theme parks then. So there was a planned expansion. They were going to make a whole Roger Rabbit land in MGM Studios, Roger Rabbit's Hollywood. There was going to be a Toontown Transit Simulator ride, which is what you can see here. You were going to sit inside one of the doomed LA trolley cars and ride through Toontown as Dumbo flies around and whatever. Um, this, this, so this was like a simulator thing. It's a bit like the bus at the Shrek Adventure. I, I said this if everyone's been on the Shrek Adventure on the South Bank. Check it out. There's like a bus ride. Uh, Sam went to Shrek's Adventure at like 10 in the morning uh, with our other friend Emma, who sadly can't be here today. That made it sound like she's died. She's just in Newcastle. Um, <laughs> you guys went to Shrek's Adventure together. Then we went out for a pizza and you guys spent a full hour listing every single thing that happens at Shrek's Adventure. And then then Emma had to go and lie down for like five hours. She was extremely ill. Yeah. So don't, I was going to say, don't drink in Shrek's Adventure. I don't even think Emma had been drinking. I think it was just too much to take all at once. And then so, like, oh yeah, always Shrek's Adventure responsibly. Like a day later, COVID happened. It's like I went into Shrek's Adventure and I came out and the world was a different place. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the shift in time and space. Yeah. But there is a bus simulator ride, which is vaguely similar to what was going to be built in MGM Studios for Roger Rabbit, which is why we're talking about Shrek's Adventure. Um, they later in California, instead of doing that, because Euro Disney happened and it was a financial disaster and we didn't want to build a whole big thing in Florida, so they built a smaller area in California called Mickey's Toontown. I don't know why it's Mickey's Toontown all of a sudden, like he's the, the king or something, like he's the mayor, but why is there a statue of him in the middle of town? I don't know. So it's like this kind of cartoon world. Obviously, it's only the Disney characters who live there. Looks like you're in Toontown, I guess, vaguely. There's a ride, Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin. And there he is, Benny's bursting out of a wall. You're Are you sitting a Benny? <laughs> does, is this still, does this still exist? Can we go on this? I think it's under refurbishment, but it's going to reopen. <gasps> yes. And I, uh, well, the thing is, Ben. What? That's not Benny. That is Benny's identical cousin, Lenny. <laughs> I was about to say, is it, I don't know, Bobby or something? No, it's Lenny. It's Lenny. It's Lenny. Um, Why do they have to change the name? Why can't that just be Benny? Because the premise of this ride is that you're going for a trip with the Toontown Cab Company, and Lenny works for the Toontown Cab Company. Benny is freelance. Uh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Important distinction. Yeah. What's next? So I can't believe they, they, they had to work that out because they were like, people aren't going to be pulled into this world if they're like, but yeah. Benny's a freelancer. What's he doing working at the Toontown Cab Company? This is Pleasure Island. Oh, We've okay. talked about this before because it was named after the island in Pinocchio. Yeah, when no one comes back as boys. <laughs> you come back as men. <laughs> you come back as men from Pleasure Island. Um, this was Disney's uh, nightclub district that they built in Florida. And Jessica Rabbit was like the mascot. I should have put a gif in there because her like her leg like lifts up and down on that sign. So that doesn't exist anymore. But recently, actually, they didn't have Jessica Rabbit walk around characters 
when the movie dropped, and they recently added, would you like to see what Jessica Rabbit looks like in Disneyland? I am I'm already worried <laughs> about what Surely it's just going to be a woman in a dress. Just a woman in a dress. A what a you dress. would call a face character, where it's the, 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 the actual actor's face is visible and not wearing a, some kind of horrible, creepy mask of some kind. <laughs> I'm scared, Sam. I'm scared. Oh, oh no. Oh, that is... Oh. <laughs> That is, why would they feel the need to do that? So that is a human woman wearing what looks like another human woman's skin. All over with a face, how, uh, can they see out the eye holes? Of course they can see out the eye holes, not just fumbling around. Um, that's nasty, isn't it? That is horrifying. Is I guess that... because the whole point is that she's a cartoon, so they want to make her look a bit like a cartoon and not just a woman. Because like, so, so in it, like Jasmine or Snow White, these can be women in dresses because they represent real women in the movies, but Jessica Rabbit is a cartoon in the movie, so. So let's do you that. You can try and justify this all it's you not, want. No, it's, not, it's not good. <laughs> this should never have happened. Did anybody, I think this is the next slide, did anybody play a game on the, oh, it's not the next slide. Did anyone play this Roof and Roger Rabbit Super Nintendo game? Because right, you could phone Jessica Rabbit. In this game, it gives you Jessica Rabbit's actual phone number. And again, actual phone number. And you need to phone her, and she tells you what to do to progress in the game. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, the line is currently defunct. Uh, Did you try and call it this week? It's in America. I owe to like 20 quid. for not, no. no, I didn't do that. It was a silly joke. Did anyone play Bugs Bunny's Crazy Castle? on the? That was on the NES. It was on the Game Boy. I had it on the Game Boy. No. Bugs Bunny's Crazy Castle. That's what it looks, looks like. crazy. It looks Ooh. pretty crazy. That's what it looks like in Japan. Isn't that interesting? Wow, so it had Roger Rabbit in Japan. It's Roger Rabbit in Japan originally, and then they made it Bugs Bunny in America because different companies had the rights to the game. Is that... We've got five minutes left. That wasn't interesting enough. I, I, thought, I thought it was interesting. Okay, this is interesting, right? Okay. Did you ever play like RuneScape or like World of Warcraft or anything like that? Uh, not really, but I know of it. Mul massive multiplayer online role-playing game. This is Toontown Online. Oh. Uh, this is a, a massive multiplayer whatever game for, uh, based in the world of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but not with Who Roger Rabbit in it because the you know, the Amblin thing. Um, this is supposed to be Toontown. It's Toontown. You create your own Toon character. This one's called Noisy Zany Frankendoodle. Of That's course. The screenshot I've got there, and they're in the district of Sillyville, as you can see. So as we have been for the last 85 <laughs> minutes. So you meet other guys, you can't type, you can because it's for kids, and who knows what you might say. But you can only communicate through pre-built text, like, welcome to Toontown. How are you doing? And there's categories of text, like, happy, sad, or stinky. <laughs> so you, you can design your own character. But again, you can only pick from a set number of names and you can mix and match. So you could be like Sheriff, Peppy, Bumpendorf, or Skinny Pickles, Cheesy Face. <laughs> so I'll call you that for the rest of the day. Tag yourself. So there's Mickey. Mickey's in it. There is a sequel novel to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. There's been multiple attempts at following up this story. So how did they sequelize it if he dies in the book? So this is a this sequel, is a sequel to, to the, the movie, movie but also written by Gary Wolf. Written by Gary Wolf, who wrote the book. Can I possibly find my notes? Yes, so it's called Who Plugged Roger Rabbit. Um, they're remaking Gone with the Wind with cartoons. And Roger is up for the role of Rhett Butler. Meanwhile, Eddie is investigating a suspected affair between Jessica Rabbit and Clark Gable. 
and Eddie falls in love with Joellen, Jessica's sister, who is only six inches tall. I was going to say that looks like Jessica Rabbit, but tiny. But so again, that is correct. It's always with the siblings; they're identical siblings. But but tiny. <laughs> they tried to make a sequel movie as well, or a prequel movie rather. For a long time, this prequel was in development, called Roger Rabbit Toon Platoon. It involved Roger fighting in World War II, trying to save Jessica from the Nazis. <laughs> wow. While also trying to find his mother. Because toons have mothers, whatever. And it's interesting because a lot of these cartoon characters did fight the Nazis in cartoons. Like, they were deployed to make propaganda films where, like, Bugs Bunny punches Herman Goring in the face or whatever. And Spielberg refused to produce a film which trivialized the Nazis, which I think Wait, is I, kind of fair. After 1988? Oh, I guess so. What, was he doing Schindler's List? But Schindler's List doesn't trivialize the Nazis. That's, no. his Schindler's List is very... No, I was about to say, but he made three Indiana Jones movies that's people punching Nazis in the face. People. Not Cartoon Rabbits. Right. In the final shot, it's revealed that his dad, Roger Rabbit's dad, is Bugs Bunny. And the last line of the film is... Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> Impregnating female rabbits. Wow, that's horrifying. Was, was uh, Mickey Mouse also obligated to be involved uh, for the same amount of time as Bugs Bunny? I, I know that Daffy Duck was in the Toon Platoon. He was one of the members of the Toon Platoon, fighting the Nazis. Anyway. He did horrifying things you wouldn't believe. So, <laughs> so this was rewritten by Sherry Stoner, who did the live-action modeling for Ariel and the Little Mermaid, and replaced World War II with Roger's Rise on Broadway, complete with songs by Alan Menken. In 2009, rumors of a sequel resurfaced in light of Zemeckis' demented obsession with making terrible motion capture films. <laughs> It was going to be 2D cartoons with 3D humans, 3D motion capture humans. Ooh. And Don Hahn, the producer, claimed in an interview with Empire Magazine, if you're a fan pretty soon, <laughs> you're going to be very, very happy. And I remember reading that and thinking, if this gets my hopes up for no reason, I'm going to make this report appear. So if anyone knows where to find Nick Disemley in. <laughs> if anyone knows if Nick Disemley is in the room today. <laughs> In 2013, Gary Wolf approached Disney with his own idea for a remake, well, for a sequel to Roger Rabbit, which is also a remake, of the 1950 Dean Martin Jerry Lewis comedy The Stooge, for the kids, where Roger Rabbit is the Jerry Lewis character and Mickey Mouse is the Dean Martin character. I'm starting to get the sense that this Gary Wolf character is somewhat eccentric, <laughs> based on everything. Um, but of course, Robert Zemeckis did eventually make another movie with Roger Rabbit in it. It was called Pinocchio 2022, <laughs> because Geppetto has built in this movie a clock, a cuckoo clock, which depicts Roger Rabbit kissing Jessica Rabbit. But this, like Roger Rabbit, the movie doesn't exist in the movie Pinocchio, so Geppetto has just randomly decided to depict a rabbit in some dungarees, necking it on with a buxom human woman. He is a weird Geppetto in that movie. I can believe that of him. Well, this is part of a sequence where, when we watched it the other day, Sam yelled and leapt off the sofa, and we had to rewind it about three times to catch all of the cameos in Geppetto's clocks. But I think our time is basically up, so does that wrap us up? That is it. Look, it's the end. Amazing. Bang on time. So that means we need one more. 
Thank you so much. And that is it for this week's class. Thank you so, so much for coming out to our first ever live show. We're delighted that you decided to spend your Sunday afternoon with us. It really means a lot. And so great to celebrate this uh, iconic, incredible film. Uh, so have you had a good time with us today? Have you had a, a nice time? Yeah. Amazing. That's what we like to hear. But for now, it's goodbye from the one and only Dr. Sam Summers. Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. For one time only on this show, I'm going to sign off with a phrase that probably haunted Disney for a good while. That's all, folks. <laughs> Cue the music. <laughs> Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.